Pig X, ideas in the swine industry worth sharing. Welcome back to the Pig X Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney Howell. On the last episode, we talked to Dr. Chris Sievers and Dr. Ryan Strobel from the Swine Vet Center about their first five points in their 10-point system of 10 ways to reduce wean-to-finish mortality. In the last episode, we talked about benchmarking, starting out on the right foot, having a flow plan, a vaccination plan, and a barn layout. So if you haven't listened to episode eight, be sure to pause now, go back, and re-listen to those first five points. Otherwise, let's move on. This time, we're going to be wrapping things up with the last five points. Let's kick it off with nutrition. Chris, kick us off. Yeah, so the next one on our list is feed, and and I'll start start this off with I'm certainly not a nutritionist and and don't don't claim to be one but for me it's it's really starting off with finding a good nutritionist to work with one that works closely with you works closely with your veterinarian and you guys can create a plan really focused on your pig and what I mean by your pig is going back to understanding the flow and what you're receiving you, you really need to feed to the age the weight the genetics, especially with more and more Durox becoming popular today, whether it's an easier or hard starting pig, health challenges that that pig will face, known gut, gut pathogens, and really building your feed plan around that list. And by building your feed plan, I mean the number of rations that you would feed, how long you feed those rations to get you to that transitioning into the into the finishing phase. And so certainly is not a one size fits all and and really important to work with your nutritionist and understanding your pig and getting that information to your nutritionist to to develop the right plan. And you know, why is feed so important? It, it's really it revolves around the stress of weaning, right? I mean, we take a pig that's been on mom for 20, 21 days, had 12 to 14 litter mates, gotten to drink milk for for his life and had a, either a mother to wake him up by grunting or a buddy saying, hey, teats open, dinner bells rang about every 50 minutes. And so there's a big social change there. Not only are we coming off of milk, but the social piece of go from 14 pigs in that litter, maybe up to 25, possibly up to two, 300 in some of these larger pen settings. The feed changes from a liquid milk diet to a corn soy based diet. We try to get some easier digestible proteins in there, but certainly still a large change. The stress of the truck ride to get there. A lot of these pigs get vaccinated around weaning as well. And I'm sure everyone who's had a tetanus vaccine or some of these other vaccines, you feel the, the soreness and feel a little achy for a day or two. The pigs are going through the same thing there. A new barn environment, temperature. They're dealing with gates versus solid dividers. They're they're having to find that large stainless steel feeder rather than an underline on their mom and trying to find that water and also a temperature difference. The final one is water access and making sure that we help them quickly find that. And, and that's probably one of the key ones to find right away of having fresh water, filling those cups or having dripping into cups, extra bowls to help find water immediately after arrival. And so how can we help with that transition? And really, it comes down to initially feeding those pigs and, and, and doing that on the sow so that they do have a taste of what that feed is, is when they get to the wean to finish barn or nursery. And so just a small, just a very small cup full uh, once a day just to get them that taste and to know what they're going to go look for when they hit that weaning event. And then once they get to the barn, I, I think it's really important to do what I call four times per day chores. And and I, I get it that we can really probably only be there twice a day. But during those two visits, the first thing you do is go through is stir the pigs up, throw some mat feed down, fill the water cups, 
then go through and treat the pigs. Finally, before you leave, quickly go through, refill gruel bowls, mat feeding, and, and water cups, and then do that again for your second visit. So really, we're getting those pigs up twice for that once a day, one one-time visit, and then come back in the afternoon and repeat. And I think it's really important to get all those pigs up, make sure that we show them where food and water is, start with the mats, work them to the feeders, help get fresh water into those cups, clean those cups out a couple times a day, make sure we have a high quality palatable feed that they like to eat, has some milk or whey powder in it and some goodies in that initial diet to get help with that transition. Use gruel and mat feeding to to help show them that that's what they're supposed to be eating. And, and that really helps with the social aspect. I'll get into that in a second. Make sure we have enough and fresh water. A lot of times after power washing, Ryan pointed out them cups are dirty and making sure that initial drink of water is fresh and we get those cleaned out. And then quickly IDing those hard starting Gantt pigs that aren't filling their bellies up, aren't finding those mats and gruel feeders and getting those to a care pen to where we can keep a closer eye on them. And so kind of transitioning into grueling and why grueling works so well and why Ryan and I are a big fan of that. It, a lot of times we'll use the, either the Rotecna Red Bull or more of a trough style feed bunk method that, that bolts down into the slat. And if we're using the Red Bull, usually use one per 25 pigs. If we're using a trough, usually it's about a trough per 100 head. And it's really, if you think about it like cereal and milk, no one likes eating their Wheaties dry, especially young kids when we transitioning them from milk onto, you know, normal feed like food like we would eat. And so starting that off with a third, third full of the pellet or feed and then filling that up with water. Now, I will say if we have less pigs than that in there or on that initial fill of the group, well, don't overdo that. We don't want it to be left there more than two hours because if it is, it gets stale. And so making sure that we fill that bowl accordingly or trough accordingly to the number ahead so that feed doesn't get stale and old on those pigs and have the reverse effect. And so really starting the first day, 70% water, 30% feed, and then working backwards to 70% feed, 30% water to help them transition onto dry feed from there. And usually doing that around five days certainly can extend that seven to 10 days on more challenged pigs. You certainly can also use a gruel specific product like a proteolite or a tenicity to help with the flavoring aspect. I find that helpful if we have PD or purse challenge pigs and that really having a tough time getting started. Another thing we can do on top of their normal feed. And then mat feeding, really the goal there is just to get those pigs a taste or a start back on feed. It's very similar to like I talked with creep feeding. Really just want enough feed there to last for 20 to 30 minutes. It's about a handful of feed per mat. And doing that multiple times per visit, like I talked, we don't we don't want to waste too much feed. These pigs will nose that around, so just a small amount more frequently. And it helps remind them that feed is always available versus and really kind of replacing what mom was doing by barking and laying over. We're going along and sprinkling, sprinkling that on the mats for them to remind them that's available. And all this is really focused around promoting gut health and having a consistent feed intake of a quality feed really helps that gut in terms of having uh, good tight junctions it fights against rotaviruses and e coli's and really helps that pig get off to a good start because failure leads to what's commonly referred to as a leaky gut syndrome where those tight junctions in between the proteins of the gut start breaking down or the cells of the gut start breaking down and strep parasuis and some of our other pathogens can get through there and cause more disease down the road so that's where there's really been a focus on keeping good, consistent intake and, and promoting gut health of these pigs because it'll have large, larger impacts down the road. 
And then just some other mistakes that Ryan and I have seen as we, we go through barns is, you know, improper feed budget management. What I mean by that, if we're filling a barn over seven or 10 days, the first pigs in the barn get to eat more of that initial budget than the last pigs and making sure that we evenly distribute those first couple phases of feed based off pounds per pig as closest as we can and filling feeders and, and pulling slides to do that, making sure we don't have any leftover feed from a previous turn. We don't want to a wean pig getting the N4 diet or a or a late finishing diet as their first taste of feed certainly not not what not is that is not what it's designed for. Proper feeder management, making sure that those are cleaned out before pigs get there, make sure clean feeds available, and then making sure we have adequate water space and and that those waters are in a position that those young pigs can get a hold of them. They aren't set in position on sliding or swinging waters where they were for for larger pigs before that. So after you look at feed and feed strategies, what's kind of next on the checklist, so to speak? Well, Delaney, that kind of rolls into our, it seems off topic, but we're going to talk about supervisor roles and and training staff. I would say this area is one of the most challenging but rewarding in the industry. I know the old adage is people always say the pigs are easy and the people are hard. It's definitely true. But I think when you get the right people and you get the right situations going, it can be one of the most fun areas in our industry. I'd say on a supervisor role, our key goal would be to find the right person that has equal parts people skills and pig husbandry. Sometimes it's easy to find good people that have pig husbandry, and sometimes it's easy to find people that have good people skills. It is definitely a challenge. I think we can all agree that it's hard to find people that have both. So our supervisor can range within our own clients from an owner to an employee as a supervisor or just a caretaker as a supervisor once in a while too. And so it ranges all over the board. And when I mean supervisors within our barns, so this, this area is, is very broad spectrum when I talk about it, but we, we spend a lot of time focusing on our supervisors. I think this is one of the key areas when we talk about feed budgets, vaccine communication, biosecurity, a lot of that we rely on our supervisors to get executed and done correctly. Um, and if it's not done correctly, they're usually the first people we go to and ask them why, what happened who made a mistake, where did we not follow through on, and we asked them to drive into it and dive into finding those issues. One of the areas that we get asked a lot by the owners is how much should my supervisors be doing on site? And what I mean by that, should they be going on site spot treating pigs, pulling, or should they be spending more time discussing and communicating with the employees? And, and I definitely believe there's a balance. I don't think you can go into a barn and just bark orders and tell people what to do all the time without driving some change and leading by example. I think there's times where we need to go in and, and help and say, yep, th- this is a tough turn. We're going to help you resort, inject pigs, gruel, mat feed. We're going to go through the whole process with you, especially on a new contract grower or a new caretaker. There's other times where I expect that supervisor to get to six sites today because we've got a lot of things going on or or they've got to mark a load at the end of the day and there's, there's other items that need to get done. Well, it's not always possible to spend six hours at one site. And so there's really driving changes by leading by example at the right times. The other thing that I see a lot as a mistake with a supervisor is blame versus education. And what I mean by that is you can't always blame the supervisor. And there are times we need to educate. You know, if it's repetitive over a six month or a year period, then there may be some blame starting to happen. But early on, we need to really take a step back and say, hey, I I probably know more than this caretaker. I need to really train him work with them, step back to the basics. This is why we mat feed. This is why we gruel feed. That caretaker may not understand that mom milks every 20 to 40 minutes or that they bark to get the piglets up or that 
you know, they just got weaned and they had no feed. They may not get any gruel feed in the, in the sow farm. And so there's lots of different steps that not everybody understands, especially we get a lot of caretakers that don't have any pig experience. And so some of them don't even realize that those weaned pigs are only 19 to 21 days old. So it's unbelievable how fast those pigs grow. And so getting them started is really, really important. The other thing I would think works well with supervisors is setting up a show barn. And so if you've got one barn in your system or your operation that is, is, has the best caretaker or the best facility or just, you know, has always done well, I think that helps because sometimes if a supervisor is struggling with contract grower or a caretaker, they can say, hey, hop in the truck and let's go take a look at this barn. So-and-so grower always does an excellent job. I'm not even going to tell him we're coming. We're just going to go see what he does on a daily basis. And I think that that builds some trust and you can say, hey, there's other things you can just talk through rather than trying to re-explain it every single time on the same site. Now that goes a little bit away. We're going to take a step back and talk about supervisor training too. I think we expect a lot out of our supervisors. And so we need to give them the support that they need as well. I think it's really important, you know, after we get past COVID, hopefully to sit down in person at least once a quarter and review all the flows and performance show them the data if they don't see it often enough. I think sometimes as owners or veterinarians and nutritionists, we see the data and, and analyze that quite often, but our supervisors might not have access to all the data that we do. So walking it through with them, making sure they understand what data is important to you and your system, where you're spending time focusing on is, is really key as well. The other thing that I think in the swine industry, we don't always do a great job on is following up on any relationship issues immediately. The best systems I work with do a great job at, at not only handling conflict directly, but they don't avoid it for months on end. I think that's where we make a key mistake with some of our supervisors or contract role relationships is we tend to delay the inevitable, where we need to sit down and handle that up front, you know, maybe not the same day, maybe give people a day or two to relax after something comes up, but definitely handling it in a professional, immediate manner and sitting down face to face, I think is always a great idea. And training supervisors to do that is, is really key too. And then continued communication. I think setting up key metrics of your supervisors, let's say they have 20 sites. Well, if telling those caretakers, hey, per thousand head, if you see more than three deads, you need to call me. If the water intake drops by 50 gallons, you need to call me. You know, setting up those kind of measures where they have key points where they need to call is really a good idea because otherwise we go one way or the other on the spectrum. Some caretakers will call you every time a pig sneezes and some caretakers won't call until they don't think they can handle it anymore and you've had 60 deads. And so setting up metrics so everybody's on the same page, I think can be a really good idea too. And going along with giving the supervisors the tools they need, I think each of the supervisors should have the direct contact information for the veterinarian and nutritionist so that they can get a hold of them whenever they have issues not only on feed, but health or any other questions that they have. The other item that I think I see a lot of good systems or good farms set up with is having some sort of ventilation person come through once or twice a year to almost all your sites. Now, they may not make it to all your sites, but going through with a supervisor, retraining them on a few key items with a ventilation expert is really, really important and can add a lot of value to the system. The next item Delaney I'm going to go into that uh, kind of ties into our supervisor training is grow finished biosecurity. We always talk with our supervisors on how important biosecurity is. We talk with caretakers on how important biosecurity is. And everybody knows that's a key term in the industry, 
But how achievable is grill finish biosecurity? Is it more of a myth or is it actually doable? And I would say it, it depends on the situation, but there's always things we can get better on. The following objectives are the main three that I always look at. You want to prevent the introduction of an infectious disease. You want to reduce the spread within your farm and obviously prevent the spread of disease from infected farms to uninfected farms. Uh, sounds simple enough, but not always easy to do. Uh, for instance, PERS, uh, depending on the conditions outside, has a, a very wide length of survival. And so at, a, let's just say, for example, 98 degrees Fahrenheit, PERS should only last roughly 24 hours. And if we go to more of a moist, cold 30 degree day, it can last up to 11 days. And if we go into frozen, it can last up to years. And so obviously, that's why we see different uh, seasons of disease challenges within the industry. And I think we all know that, that you go into fall, cooler weather, manure spreading, PERS seems to flare up again. You go into nice, warm, summer, dry days, seems to go away. There's main factors in grow finish that I want to control. The number one thing that I think people need to talk through is people and people movement and how they enter sites. So setting up a pyramid within your own operation or within your daily chore takers of saying, hey, I've got you chore these three sites. This flow is healthy. Let's start there in the morning every time. These two flows are more challenged and that you got to go to these two barns next. Set up an order so they start clean to dirty every day or within the week, depending on how your supervisors and or caretakers need to get to their sites. Then obviously re-explaining to people the risk of what they have every day. If they stop at the gas station right before they go to a site, that's a risk. If they are in other people's pigs at night or helping vaccinate or load out a cruise at night or in the morning, that's a risk as well. So showing them the importance of whether you have a shower on site or a shower, if they need to go home and shower and change, all things that we can talk about. But I'd say people is always the number one risk that we have. Other items in and out of farms, maintenance items is a big one we see that go farm to farm to farm. A lot of people nowadays are not doing as much maintenance directly themselves. A lot of people are hiring it out. So making sure your, your maintenance crew understands your farm, your health status, and your risk tolerance to other farms is really important. So we talked a little bit about entering sites. I think having a clean, dirty line is absolutely key. And so my best scenario is having a bench that you would then change over your shoes as you enter over. The next best scenario is having just a tape line that you take your dirty shoes outside and don't enter the site. And then showering in would be the, obviously the very best step. But if not, at least washing your hands, changing your boots, and changing coveralls can still be a big step into getting Grow Finished Biosecurity. The other item that we miss a lot of times on Grow Finished Biosecurity is, okay, we entered the site properly, we're in the barn. Well, now I've got feed bins that aren't running, a feed line that's not running. I need to check feed bins or I've got deads to haul out. All big risk factors. We know those feed trucks go site to site to site. Um, and we know we need to walk right in the same area as that feed truck driver. I would say one of the best things we see is either a change of boots or rinsing off your boots as you re-enter the site back in. Really key items as you check your feed bins. We're not expecting people to shower out just to check feed bins every single time, especially on bigger sites where we've got quite a few or sites that we walk between barns. But I do think a quick boot rinse can help knock a lot of that those items down really quickly. The biggest risk that I see on grow finish sites is still rendering. I would say this is happening on quite a few grow finish sites, but making sure that we have a designated pair of boots and coveralls to go to the rendering box and making sure that that's the very last item of the day and that we don't re-enter the site 
besides showering out after entering the rendering box are key items that I think we miss a lot. We may have protocols in place, but we need to make sure they're easy enough to get done on a daily basis. The other thing that I think would, is successful in Grow Finish Biosecurity is moving that dead box further away from the site. I still go to a lot of sites today that have the, the dead box, you know, 20 feet from the barn door entrance. I, I think that's way too close. I know that's convenient for pulling out deads, but that means that rendering truck has to pull right up to your site. So moving that away is another simple way to get uh, more grow finished biosecurity done on an easier day-to-day -day basis. Animal movements is another obviously big risk. I think feeder to finish movements is a huge risk because we don't always watch truck washes as much on that area. We don't always have clean, uh, clean shoots. We don't always watch those areas nearly as much as sow farms or finishers that are going to dirty packing plants, but that's still a key item. The other thing that I've seen be really successful on sites is making sure all your doors are locked at all times, not only for intruders that you don't want on your site, but even people in the pig industry as they're going site to site, let's say you got a new caretaker or a new supervisor, they may go to the wrong site not knowing what they were doing. I think that happens a lot in Iowa is you've got a lot of sites that are really close together that look very similar. So if you've got your doors locked with a different key, there's no chance that they enter accidentally. Um, that's another area that can help quite a bit. Entryways on grow finish sites, we talked a little bit about this, but keeping them dry, clean, and warm is really key. And I also think having a disinfectant available to spray off any items you need to bring in, any tools, uh, phones, anything you need to bring into the site, making sure that that's disinfected as much as we can with a, as much practicality as possible is key. And I know that it seems easier said than done, but re-addressing re these issues, at least going into every fall, is, is really important for your system and operation. And obviously, the best way to, to be effective in, in production, nutrition, and, and everything is, is having a key health status um, every day of the year helps dramatically. And so with that, Chris, I'll pass it back on over to you. So the next item on our list is really timely pig treatment. And what we mean by that is, is, is getting that pig treated at the right point in time to be successful in, in getting that pig as a grade A to market. And it goes back to one of our mentors has told us many times a story of, of when really, really Tim Lola started in, in being a pig veterinarian, it was a lot of uh, family to finish operations where the nursery was really a hot room next to the next to the farrowing barn. And it'd usually be the farmer's wife taking care of those pigs. She'd feed them six, seven, eight times a day and really watch for the pig that doesn't come up to eat to treat that pig. So extremely early on the timing of treatment. And they didn't have some of the antibiotics available like we do today, like enterofloxacin or chalathromycin, some of the high higher powered, longer lasting antibiotics, a lot of penicillin and LA-200, and we're very successful with those. And, and really the, the piece to pull from that is that they were extremely timely in finding that pig at when it just started feeling off versus when it was Gantt starting to lose body condition and, and going backwards. And so I think it really leads into a program that it was originally Pfizer, now Zoetis has, has had for quite some time with the individual pig care training with the A, B, and C, and E pigs. And I think they do a really good job in that program of uh, going through, you know, what the A pig is, the B pig, and the C pig, and would highly recommend that program for helping train new caretakers on timely pig treatment. And it comes down to finding those pigs early, you know, early on in the turn, it's using mat feeding and gruel feeding and going back to the farmer's wife story of watching for those pigs that don't come up and eat during that and getting those treated 
And then watching those pigs that we treat and seeing how they respond, if they don't start responding, getting them to a critical care pen where there's less competition, a warmer environment, and we can take extra care of them to get those pigs to turn around. And I mean, what that really comes down to is the APEG is really the acutely ill pig. And, and their, their data would say there's about an 80% cure rate on those pigs if we get those treated timely. And that's regardless of the disease in terms of getting that pig to a grade A market hog. By the time they become a B pig, that number's closer to 60%. And by the time they're a C pig, and that's your gant, backbones, um, really showing loss of, of heavy body condition, that, that number is more about 25% to a third. And so that's how important it is to get those pigs treated timely and, and pulled timely and really with caretakers, it's helping them understand kind of a pay it forward uh, standpoint in terms of work. And if we can put the extra work into finding those pigs early and getting them treated, that means fewer pigs we have to pull um, that are going backwards and, and ultimately fewer pigs that we have to remove for the barn from a mortality standpoint. And so I think it's really important to work with both supervisors and growers on on being very timely on getting those pigs treated and using a program like the individual pig care from Zoetis to, to help do that. And, and I think it really comes down to hand-in-hand -hand training with veterinarians and supervisors with those caretakers of walking pens, identifying those pigs together, helping them understand what the challenges are for that flow of pigs and what to keep eyes open for, and then making sure that they continue that through the turn. We will see a lot of times that, you know, really good, really good effort goes in the first week to 10 days and then it kind of tails from there. It's really making sure we get our eyes on every pig every day with a syringe in our hand and getting that pig treated when it's sick. If we're making the decision to only treat three times a week, well, it's not like pigs don't get sick on Tuesday, Wednesdays or the weekends, right? It, it's making sure that we get that pig treated as soon as we identify in them as being ill and, and walking every pin every day to make sure that we identify every pig that, that's ill. And ultimately, again, it goes to the pay it forward of that will lead to less mortalities and removals that you have to do within that barn. And the final piece on our list is ventilation. Ventilation is a very in-depth topic and certainly something that we could spend a whole, a whole talk on uh, going through. So I'm going to do my best to highlight kind of the, the, the main points on ventilation and certainly uh, reach out to resources like ISU Extension and veterinarians uh, production staff to, to help with ventilation further. And really for me, again, it starts with focusing on the basics. And and before I ever look at a controller in a barn or, or set points or any of that, I, I go straight to the pig. And, and really the pig is a great thermometer to tell you their comfort level and, and where they, how comfortable they feel. Right? If those pigs are piling two, three deep, we, we need to make an adjustment of of raising set point, raising the actual temperature of that barn, making sure they have a warm enough area to lay with zone heating or potentially reducing minimum ventilation and drafting of those pigs. And or if they're they're laying out and getting dirty, you'll see this sometimes this time of the year, growers getting afraid of, of reducing the set point and, and letting that temperature get cool enough that the pigs, if they're warm, their natural tendency is to go wallow in their in their manure. And so you'll see that real dirty pens in some of these barns that are getting too warm. And then the other thing really to watch is making sure that the transitions from minimum up to stage one, two, three are spread out enough this time of year that uh, we're not jumping quickly between stages. And some of the newer controllers like the Maximus and the Edge that can do printouts of what those stages are doing during the day are extremely helpful. Otherwise, the other way to do that is 
is sit there and watch that barn go through those stages and be there at some different time points of the day for different temperatures to make sure, for example, like on a curtain-sided barn, the curtain's not coming down too soon and it's just sitting there yo-yoing between the last fan stage and the curtains and really keeping a close eye on some of these transition periods of the year. But ultimately, it still comes down to pig comfort or stress and and uh, making sure that we're doing the best we can to keep those pigs comfortable. And, you know, that goes into what does the pig feel? There's multiple pieces that that affect what that pig feels, right? There's the actual temperature of the bar, and that's what our temp probes measure. But then there's the real feel or, you know, the, the wind chill effect, right? That that pig can feel radiant heat from a brooder or a, or a larger tube heater. That pig can feel the actual the breeze, the wind chill effect. It can have conductive um, cooling from the cement floor if we don't have mats on those wean pigs. And then there's also the evaporative cooling effect. If, if there's moisture in the barn, we use that in the summertime because pigs don't sweat to help cool those uh, larger market hogs in the summertime. But if pigs are wet due to scour or humid environment within that barn not getting dried out, that can also cool those pigs quicker than we would anticipate. And so some of the some of the best things we can do for ventilation, especially on young pigs, is using brooders or some form of zone heating, um, and then mats, especially in wean to finish barns. But uh, certainly don't rule that out in nurseries, especially for care pens, to keep those younger challenged pigs warmer as they transition, but then quickly transitioning them to to being in the normal environment as they feel comfortable for that. As you have the other thing is you have challenged pigs, don't be afraid to adjust set point based off of how pigs are feeling or adjust the actual room temperature. Certainly Ryan and I have both had barns were not afraid to go 88, 89, 90 degrees on set point, meaning that it's not getting cooler than 87, 88 degrees in that barn if we don't have zone heating to try and help those pigs feel comfortable as they're going through a fever and disease challenges. Because I'm sure as everyone else has felt, when you get the flu or, or a fever, you're doing some weird things. You'll lay under the blanket for a while and then you'll go adjust the thermostat and then you'll get the hot sweats and go the other way. And we want to be able to give the pigs the opportunity to have that blanket and pillow effect with our brooders and zone heating. If we don't have that, making sure that we get the rest of the room warm enough for them to feel comfortable. And really, the, the end goal of, of ventilation, especially when we're in the minimum ventilation stage, is to remove humidity, CO2, and ammonia and replace that with oxygen and fresh air. And starting at that one to one and a half CFM a pig this time of year, quickly moving up to two and then taking that up to eight to 10 when they're a finishing hog over, you know, over the, the length of their finishing period. And so, Humidity is a great, great tool to use as a, as a final measurement if your minimum ventilation is, is correct. And trying to keep that number under 70% is critical. It really helps keep the barn dry. It helps keep bugs like strep and E. coli from growing more in the environment and being there. And it also helps keep that environment comfortable for those pigs. So humidity is a great measurement and keeping that under 70% is really the goal. Other measurements within our group that we've started watching is carbon dioxide, ammonia, and then carbon monoxide as well. You can get different readers for some of these, carbon dioxide being the most common one, that will run into some scenarios where humidity is okay, but carbon dioxide is actually too high. And, and carbon dioxide can make pigs sleepy, especially on that, on that first phase of uh, when they come into the barn, when they're small and already want to be in that state, something that we definitely want to watch closely. And so, you know, how do we achieve it? Obviously, it's with the majority of our barn just creating negative pressure to draw air top down, making sure that we're drawing that air top down and not through leaks like under the doorways or around curtains. 
making sure, like Ryan said, that the soffits are open, that we can get the air to those inlets, and then making sure that the fans are running properly to create that negative static pressure that we're after. Certainly can close some of the inlets this time of year to pull the same amount of air through fewer openings to help get that speed. Really like to achieve 600 feet per minute airspeed, 800 normally, but at least getting 600 on these early startups with, with less air moving. And really, it's the goal of that is to make sure that we're getting good air mixing and so that we get that air exchange like we talked about with, with getting those gases removed and oxygen replaced in there. And so I'm not going to run through all the specifics on, on what fans do, do what, but just some common pitfalls that we would see or, or come across, you know, after a barn is, is power washed or before it gets set up, make sure those temp probes get back hung where they're supposed to be for a nursery or wean to finish on the nursery phase. Want those around 35 inches of height in the pig's laying area, not where an inlet or heater would be blowing on those and the finishing in would be 51 inches over their sleeping area. And so making sure that we get those probes set properly to get the right information fed back to the controller, the, con- the, the ventilation controller is only as smart as the, as the information we give it. Also making sure we don't have any faulty temp probes reading outside the realm of what some of the others in the room are. It's really good to hang a, a recordable thermostat. They're 18, 20 bucks at Walmart that you can hang in the middle of the room just to watch your highs and lows outside the controller to make sure something isn't off and, and a very easy way to check those high lows and also gives you humidity as well. Some other things that we've seen, like Ryan said, is block soffits or too many soffits closed to not allow air into the barn uh, for staging of ventilations, unintentional air inlets, holes in curtains, ropes broken on curtains and saggy curtains, spaces around doors or or other things like that, hanging open inlets due to, due to cords, making sure also that we're getting those inlets mainly zeroed properly so they're all set the same this time of year when ice can build up and and stretch those ropes out. And so at the end of the day, it's, it's A, watching the pig, making sure they're comfortable, B, looking through those stages and how that that barn is ventilating and making sure we're not going back and forth, making sure heater's not blowing over our minimum ventilation, making sure we're not yo-yoing between stages too quickly and keeping consistent temperature. So definitely watch high lows, humidity, and and how that barn is responding to different temperatures to get there on ventilation. And that really concludes what we would have for our 10 items. Delaney, open it up for questions you would have. Well, I guess really just to sum things up for today, we've obviously split this up into two episodes talking about really the 10 ways to reduce wean to finish mortality and how to implement them. But I'll let you both answer this question or if one of you wants to take it, that's great too. But is there one of these that's more important than the other? And, you know, how does a swine system suffer or lack, if you will, if one or two or three of these 10 aren't up to par? That's a really good question, Delaney. I can start out, Chris. I would say that it's an easy answer, but I'd say it really depends. Everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses. Every every different client that I have, even though I'm the same veterinarian and I work with a couple different nutritionists on it, uh, each client has their own strengths. Some are really, really good at starting out on the right foot. They put a lot of focus on starting and grueling pigs. They put a lot of focus on cleaning that barn, but they may not follow through with the right feed budgets. They may have issues with feed delivery. Or uh, another client I work with is really, really good in supervisor training. I mean, they spend a lot of time, at least one day a week, reviewing goals with supervisors, going over uh, performance, but they may not be the best on grow finish biosecurity. 
And so I, I think that there's enough broad topics here that I would say there's not one key item. I think you got to tailor it to your client and it's probably hard to self-reflect all the time. You may want to ask people you work with, hey, out of these 10 items, where do you think I've got the most opportunity? Maybe ask your veterinarian or ask your nutritionist. The outside looking in is always easier than trying to evaluate yourself, I would say. And, and to build on what Ryan said, I, I think at times you can get away with maybe not being perfect on one or two, but as they build upon themselves, it quickly multiplies in terms of it, it, it's compounding. It's not one plus one missed equals two. It, it can be a one plus one equals four. And if we have health challenge pigs, these items become even that much more important. You know, seeing very large differences in mortality group to group with the same flow of pigs. And really it comes down to the barn and caretaking of those pigs with the vaccination strategies and that being the same, it, it comes down to execution in the, in the barn um, that can make some very large differences between groups. And like Ryan said, you help and use consultants or outside sets of eyes, whether it's a veterinarian, nutritionist, some genetic companies as well will come in and help look at things and just give you an honest answer of, of where they feel you sit and where, where you can work on those to improve and, and be better at, at producing those pigs and, and being more profitable at it. As we come to a close, I hope you have a pen and paper ready. To reiterate, we discussed benchmarking, starting out on the right foot, having a flow plan and a vaccination plan, and a barn layout, supervision and training, timely individual pig care, grow finished biosecurity, and ventilation. Of course, we can count all the steps on both hands, but each one is important to achieve the end goal, improving piglet survivability. Well, that does it for another episode of the PigX Podcast, but be sure to join us next time when we talk about the economics driving the swine industry. Don't forget to make sure and hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this episode on so you never miss a beat. Until next time, I'm Delaney Howell. PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. Pig X, ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.